Well, we're continuing on this morning in the book of Judges. Last week we saw how God raised up Gideon to deliver Israel. And this week we take a look at another famous judge, and that's Samson. Now, Samson is a striking character in the Bible. His feats of personal strength and martial valor are unmatched in the rest of Scripture. There's no warrior like Samson. Yet Samson himself commits many glaring sins that are recorded in the Bible. His life is extinguished partly due to his own foolish and sinful choices. So what are we to make of Samson? Is he a hero or is he a failure? What can we learn from the accounts of Samson about God's sovereignty, faith, and sin? Well, that's what we want to find out this morning. And we're going to be looking at Judges 13 to 16 to do so. Before we get into that, let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word, and I pray that I might be able to explain it well, accurately, helpfully, and Lord, that your spirit would be pleased to use it to transform the listeners, God. We are meant to be transformed this word, so continue to transform me and transform anyone else who's looking at this word together with us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, please open to the book of Judges, chapter 13. Judges 13. Now, we've got a lot of text to cover in Judges 13 to 16. We're going to do, what we're going to do is we're going to highlight some verses as we move through, and others I'm just going to summarize, paraphrase, uh, so that you have an idea of what's going on. We start in Judges 13, though, and this is that first section of Samson's life describing his birth. Look at Judges 13, verse 1. Judges 13, verse 1 says, Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, that is, Yahweh. They did evil evil in the sight of Yahweh, so that Yahweh gave them into the hands of the Philistines forty years. All right, here we go again in the book of Judges. Israel has once again turned from God, and this time the chastening oppressor that God sends against Israel is the Philistines. They are Israel's southwestern neighbor by the coast. You could see where the Philistines would live here on the map. That would be primarily in this area, the five cities of the Philistines. So God is disciplining Israel for once again turning away with the Philistines. But is that all that God is doing? Let's read on a little bit more in verses 2 to 5. Judges 13, 2 to 5. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had borne no children. Then the angel of Yahweh appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold now, you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Now therefore, be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. For, behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines." make a few observations on what we just read. Verse 2 says that we have this special family in the town of Zorah. Zorah is in the Sorek Valley. and Again, I'll show this to you on the map. The Sorek Valley in the Shephelah of Judah. The Shephelah, the Shvela, is the low foothills between the coastal plain. Uh, you might remember this in the geography lesson that we did. The coastal plain and the hill country. So hill country of Judah over here coastal plain of Philistia over here. The Shephelah is in between, and there are a series of valleys in the Shephelah, and one of those valleys is the Sorek Valley. On the eastern end of that valley, we have the towns of Zorah and Eshtol, and we have a family here from the town of Zorah, from the family of the Danites. 
Uh, this, by the way, just to reiterate what something I said in the geography class, the Shafala is a transition zone between the coastal plain and the hill country. You've got the low foothills here, but it's also a political transition zone. This is more Philistia over here. This is Israel on this side, and there's a little bit of mixture in between. Sometimes patternization, sometimes battle. But anyways, we're in that buffer zone or that transition zone in the Solreg Valley. Now, Manoah and his wife are barren. His wife is not able to have children, but she gets an angel, or she gets a visit from the angel of the Lord. The angel of Yahweh appears to Manoah's wife and tells her that she will have a child, and a special child, a son. In verses 4 and 5, the angel gives directions regarding this son, and we hear why in the middle of verse 5. He says, The boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. Nazarite? What's a Nazarite? Well, the term Nazarite literally has the idea of devoted one or separated one, one who's been devoted or dedicated to God. But the term has a technical meaning in Hebrew. It goes along with a certain set of instructions that Moses gives in Numbers 6, Numbers 6, 1 to 8, which describe the law of the Nazarite vow. The law of the Nazarite vow. You see, in Israel, a man or a woman could take a certain voluntary vow known as the Nazarite vow in which the person sets himself apart to God for a particular period of time as an act of worship. And for the duration of this vow, a person was to abide by three particular parameters. They were to stay away from alcohol or anything that had to do with grapes. They couldn't even eat raisins. They were to not shave their hair, probably not cut their hair either, and they were not to become ceremonially unclean. Now, what do you know? These rules from Numbers chapter 6, they correspond with the rules that the angel of Yahweh gives to the woman in Numbers th- uh, in Judges 13. Both what she's to do, even as she's pregnant with the child, but also how the child himself is to act once born. Now, Numbers 6 verse 8 says that the one who is under the Nazarite vow is considered separated and holy to Yahweh. But, according to the angel here in Judges 13.5, he says that this child will be, or the implication is this child will be separated and holy to God from his birth and will continue that way in his life. This is a special child. And we also hear a little bit about his destiny in verse 5. It says, And he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Now this is interesting. He's being raised up like the other judges, to deliver Israel from the chastening oppressor that God is sending. But notice it says he shall begin to deliver. Does this mean that someone else is going to finish what this coming one starts? Hmm. Now we're not going to read the rest of chapter 13. I would recommend that you do so later. But just look down at the end of the chapter, in verses 24 and 25, where we see this son actually being born. It says in verse 24, And the woman gave birth to a son and named him Samson. And the child grew up, and Yahweh blessed him. And the spirit of Yahweh began to stir him in Mahanadan, between Zorah and Eshtahol. Now, the boy is born, and he's named Samson. And that's kind of a curious choice for a name, because Samson means something like solar, or child of the sun. Perhaps his parents believed that Samson would function like a dawn of blessing for Israel. We hear in verse 25 that God's spirit is with Samson and it stirs him up to action. But what's Samson going to do? Let's take a look at the next chapter. Judges 14, 
And we're going to start with verses 1 to 6. Look at Judges 14, 1 to 6. The word of God continues. Then Samson, all grown up now, went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. So he came back and told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Out, therefore, get her for me as a wife. And his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives, or among all our people, that you go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she looks good to me. However, his father and mother did not know that it was of Yahweh, for he was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. Now at that time, the Philistines were ruling over Israel. Then Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother, and came as far as the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came roaring toward him. The Spirit of Yahweh came upon him mightily, so that he tore him, as one tears a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand. But he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. Hmm. Let's make some more observations here, just briefly. Notice in verse 1 that Samson goes to Timnah. That's a city in the middle of the Solrek Valley, so right in that transition space. And it's while in Timnah that a certain Philistine woman catches Samson's eye. Comes back, tells mom and dad that he'd like to arrange, or he'd like them to arrange a marriage to obtain this Philistine woman as Samson's wife. Remember, in those days it was the parents who were responsible for uh, arranging marriages, primarily. But was it right for an Israelite son to marry a Philistine? Well, no. No, it wasn't. Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 to 6, as we've mentioned many times in Sunday school, God forbids the Israelites from intermarrying with the idolatrous people of the land. There's a chain there. God says intermarriage with these pagan peoples will lead to idolatry, and your idolatry will lead to you turning away from me, and your turning away from me will lead to my judgment on you. So God says, don't marry with these people. But Samson might have said, Ah, that prohibition in Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 to 6, it specifically forbids intermarrying with the Canaanites in the land. And the Philistines are not Canaanites. So technically, I am not forbid by God from marrying a Philistine. Was that right? Well, I think that's, if that is indeed his reasoning, that would not be paying attention to the principle of Deuteronomy 7, 1 to 6. Yes, the Canaanites are highlighted in that passage specifically, but... The reason that they're highlighted is that they do not serve Yahweh. They are an idolatrous people. The principle is that if you marry an idolater, you will be led astray from Yahweh. So certainly this principle would hold with others who are not Canaanites, but who are also idolatrous non-Yahweh worshippers or syncretistic worshippers. By the way, the scripture is totally consistent here. Old Testament and New Testament, God reiterates multiple times that his people are not to marry those who don't follow Yahweh, who don't believe in God. Even in the New Testament, when it talks about someone getting remarried, Paul says, only in the Lord. That's the same for us believers today. We are not to be joined with idolaters, just as Israel was not to be joined because it will lead, it tends to lead one astray. So, Back to Samson here. We have this rising judge of Israel. He's under this permanent Nazarite vow, dedication to God, and he wants to marry the daughter of this uncircumcised Philistine. Something wrong with this picture? You can understand why his parents protest to his request in verse 3. 
And notice Samson's reasoning for this marriage. It's not like he's saying, Mom and Dad, yeah, she's a Philistine, but she's different. She loves Yahweh. No, actually, we see his reasoning at the end of verse 3. He simply says, she looks good to me. In other words, I like the way she looks. That's his reason for wanting to marry her. For the sake of mere beauty, it seems, and sexual satisfaction, Samson is willing to yoke himself with an idolater. Unfortunately, this is the same reasoning of many believers today when they pursue a romantic or marital relationship with an unbeliever. They say, yeah, it looks good. I like their personality. So they're willing to join themselves with someone who doesn't even know God. And it's not as if there weren't any good-looking Hebrew women. Like his parents say, this move, this path from Samson is totally unnecessary. Then notice verse 4. It says, This turn of events, even Samson's sinful pursuit of this Philistine bride, it was actually from Yahweh. Why? Well, God was seeking an occasion for conflict between the Philistines and the Israelites. Well, the parents acquiesced to Samson's request, and we see them traveling with Samson in verse 5. But then on the way, verse 6 says, A young lion attacks Samson. What does Samson do? He literally tears the lion apart with his bare hands. Uh, wow. And how did Samson accomplish this great feat? Notice verse 6 says, The Spirit of Yahweh came upon him mightily. That is, God empowered Samson to dispatch the lion in this way. But what happens next? I'm going to summarize this next little section from verses 7 to 18. And then we'll look at the end of the passage. Uh, wait, oh. Hang on to those points just for a second. So in verses 7 to 18, we see that the parents arranged the marriage that Samson wanted. And Samson later comes back to this Philistine family for the wedding feast. But on the way, Samson spots some bees making a nest with honey in the carcass of the lion that he killed. And besides enjoying a bit of this dead lion honey sharing it with his parents, Samson gets a great idea for a riddle at the upcoming seven-day wedding feast. And he and his wedding companions, he's got 30 wedding companions at the feast, these, they're all Philistines, uh, they both wager 30 changes of clothing over this riddle. Now, by the way, that's kind of a big deal. Remember, a change of clothes was a luxury back then. A person might not have one or two, might have only one or two changes of clothes. So 30 changes of clothes, that's quite a, a, a wager. And the riddle is to guess what the following uh, statement means. Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. This is from verse 14. Samson poses this to his guests and says, you know, tell me what this means. Well, three days go by. The wedding guests cannot figure out the riddle. So they resort to cheating and even death threats in order to discover the answer. They approach Samson's wife. They threaten to burn her and her father if she does not procure the answer from Samson. So you can imagine she was pretty motivated to discover the answer. And so she pressures Samson. She weeps before him for the rest of the wedding feast. You know, that probably was not a really nice celebratory thing. Certainly not what Samson was expecting. She's weeping before him, pressing him, saying, If you love me, why don't you tell me the secret? Samson eventually gives in and tells his wife. She in turn tells her kinsmen, and what do you know, the kinsmen tell Samson, just in the nick of time, the last day of the wedding feast, and they say, oh, well, strong as a lion, and 
The sweetness is honey. You must be talking about honey coming from a lion. Well, pay up, Samson. You owe us 30 sets of clothes. Well, Samson knows what really happened and how they obtained his their answer, and he's pretty upset. Look at Judges 14, verses 19 to 20. It says, Then the Spirit of Yahweh came upon him mightily, and he went down to Ashkelon and killed 30 of them, that is, Philistines, and took their spoil and gave the changes of clothes to those who had told the riddle. And his anger burned, and he went up to his father's house. But Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his friend. Oh boy. Samson, in verse 19, says that he leaves Timnah, that city in the middle of the valley, and he goes to Ashkelon, which is a Philistine city on the coast. So he went some distance. He finds 30 Philistines there, kills them, takes their clothes, and then brings the clothes back and gives them to his wedding guests as payment for the riddle. Now notice again how Samson accomplishes this feat. Beginning of verse 19 says, The Spirit of Yahweh came upon him mightily. Now after doing this, in hot anger, Samson leaves his new bride. He is married to her now, but he leaves his new bride behind with the bride's family, and he goes back to his own family place on the eastern end of the valley. But then in verse 20, we read that Samson's father-in-law gives his new wife to someone else as a wife. To one of Samson's friends, even. I mean, this is crazy. Samson and his wife have surely already consummated their marriage. They had a seven-day wedding feast, yet now she's being given to another man? How do you think Samson's going to react to that little piece of news? Let's read Judges 15. Judges 15, verses 1 to 8 where we hear about the next little development. Look at verse 1. But after a while, in the time of wheat harvest, Samson visited his wife with a young goat and said, I will go into my wife in her room. But her father did not let him enter. Her father said, I really thought that you hated her intensely, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please let her be yours instead. Samson then said to them, This time I shall be blameless in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. Samson went and caught three hundred foxes, and took torches, and turned the foxes tail to tail, and put one torch in the middle between two tails. When he had set fire to the torches, he released the foxes into the standing grain of the Philistines, thus burning up both the shocks and the standing grain, along with the vineyards and groves. Then the Philistines said, Who did this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he took his wife and gave her to his companion. So the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. Samson said to them, Since you act like this, I will surely take revenge on you, but after that I will quit. He struck them ruthlessly with a great slaughter, and he went down and lived in the cleft of the rock of Etam. Oh boy, things are really heating up between Philistia and Israel, even literally. We see in verses 1 to 2, Samson's father-in-law attempts to appease Samson, after giving away his his wife, appease Samson with uh, another, another bride. This attempt does not work. Notice in verse 3, Samson says this time he's going to be blameless when he harms the Philistines. And then we see how he does so. A very remarkable feat. Samson, first, catches 300 foxes. Now, don't skip over that detail. I'd say it's pretty hard to catch one fox. 
I don't know if any of you have ever tried. But he catches 300 of them. How did he do it? How long did it take to do it? And how did he take care of the foxes until he had enough to unleash on Philistia? text doesn't say, but apparently he did it. He caught 300 foxes. And then, second, he ties pairs of foxes' tails together with a torch between them, and then unleashes them in the dry standing grain of the Philistines. Panicked foxes probably ran all over the land with their fire and their tails. The Philistine crops, the vineyards, and the tree groves are all devastated, destroying the food supplies of the Philistines. Of course, seeing this, the Philistines get pretty mad, and when they find out the reason for Samson's action, they burn Samson's wife and his father-in-law to death. How does Samson react to that? Verse 7, now he feels the need to get revenge for this new evil act that the Philistines have committed. And in verse 8, we don't get the particulars, but at some location, Samson fights alone against the Philistines and says he accomplished a great slaughter before going to hide at a certain rock. So what are we seeing unfold between Samson and the Philistines? Both sides are engaged in a continual war of payback against one against the other. And the results are getting more and more serious. Now let me summarize the next section here in Judges 15. I know we're moving kind of briskly here, but trying to give you the whole account in, in, in um, a good amount of time. Verse 9 to 13, the Philistines decide, all right, we're done with Samson. It's time to capture him. And so they threaten to attack a certain city in Judah, the city of Lehi, unless the people hand Samson over. These Judahites, they go to Samson at the Rock of Edom where he's at. And they say, hey, you know, we got to hand you over. Our, those Philistine guys, they're our overlords. You can't do this. And so he said, all right, you can hand me over. You can bind me with ropes, but don't kill me. And they said, all right, we'll do that. And we're going to hand you over to the Philistines. But let's see what happens at the moment of prisoner exchange. Judges 15, verses 14 to 20 now. Look at verse 14. It says, When he came to Lehi, that's Samson, the Philistines shouted as they met him. And the Spirit of Yahweh came upon him mightily, so that the ropes that were on his arms were as flax that is burned with fire, and his bonds dropped from his hands. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey. So he reached out and took it and killed a thousand men with it. Then Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps. With the jawbone of a donkey, I have killed a thousand men. In finished speaking, he threw the jawbone from his hand, and he named that place Ramoth-Lehi. Then he became very thirsty, and he called to Yahweh and said, You have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant, And now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? But God split the hollow place that is in Lehi so that the water came out of it. When he drank, his strength returned, and he revived. Therefore he named it En-Hakore, which is in Lehi to this day. So he judged Israel twenty years in the days of the Philistines. Well, the Philistines probably thought that they had obtained their desire when they received Samson bound. But oh, how wrong they were. Samson shakes free or snaps these ropes like they're just brittle threads. And he proceeds to trounce the Philistines with a weapon he just happened to pick up. Notice verse 15 says that Samson picks up the fresh jawbone of a donkey. Okay, fresh is a little bit of a a gross detail there. 
And this is an unconventional weapon, to be sure. But notice what Samson does with it. He kills a thousand men. A thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. And no doubt, these men he's fighting against, they're armed with swords and shields and spears. But he's striking them down with an animal bone. And they must have been... They must have kept coming at Samson. He was all by himself. You know, people continue to love action movies. People love to watch just even one person outwit and outfight a horde of enemies all on his own. But whereas characters like Rambo or Jason Bourne are fictional, here in the scriptures we see a real-life one-man army. He can take a thousand people all by himself. No one can beat Samson, even when he's tied up, or even when he's only got a jawbone. He is a mighty warrior, but how did he do it? How is he so mighty? Again, notice what the, what the text says, verse 18. Or actually, uh, even before that, it talks about the Spirit of the Lord coming upon him mightily. But also in verse 18, notice what Samson says to God. He says, you have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant. Samson gets it. He says, and he indicates that he knows where his strength and victory comes from. It comes from God. God is the one making Samson so mighty. But even Samson has his limits. Notice that Samson has to cry out to God for water after such an exertion. I can imagine getting a little thirsty after fighting and killing a thousand men. And he cries out to God. How does God respond? God opens up the earth for Samson and causes water to pour forth out of it. Samson revives. By the way, all of this is taking place in the sight of Israel, the Judahites at Lehi. You think they were impressed? You think they realized that God was with this great warrior? Thus verse 20 makes a good deal of sense. It says Samson judged Israel 20 years. When talks about judging, that probably has the idea of declaring legal opinions, making, giving counsel and, and, and making pronouncements, decisions. People were coming to Samson for his counsel, for legal verdicts, because they recognized, hey, God is with you. You're a leader worth listening to. And he judged Israel for some time. Let's move on to Judges 16. After this great slaughter of the Philistines, do you think the Philistines want some vengeance on Samson? We just keep seeing both sides trying to get the other. What will the Philistines do next? Let's look at Judges 16, verses 1 to 3. Now, we'll start with just verses 1 to 3. This is what it says. Now, Samson went to Gaza, saw a harlot there, and he went into her. When it was told to the Gazites, saying, Samson has come here, they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. And they kept silent all night, saying, Let us wait until the morning light, then we will kill him. Now, Samson lay until midnight. And at midnight he arose and took hold of the door of the city gate and the two posts and pulled them up along with the bars. Then he put them on his shoulders and he carried them up to the top of the mountain which is opposite Hebron. Wow. Now verse 1 here is a little bit troubling. We're told that God's judge goes to Gaza, which is another Philistine coastal city. Philistine city. He goes there, he encounters a prostitute, and he sleeps with her. Samson, what are you doing? He seems to hate Philistine men, but loves Philistine women. The Philistines try to use this immoral rendezvous to ambush Samson. 
Well, what does Samson do? He leaves in the middle of the night and he rips out the gate of the city and he carries it all the way to Hebron. Hebron, by the way, is not close by. Let me see if I can go back to one of my earlier maps here. And just to show you that. Doot, 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 doot. Okay. Hebron is not close by. Here's where Samson is over in Gaza. He rips out the city gates and he goes all the way to Hebron. First of all, this is a long distance away. And first of all, he's going up a substantial amount of elevation to get there. This is coastal plain. He has to go through the low foothills over here in the Shephelah. And then he goes up into the hill country of Judah, carrying these gates on his shoulders until he gets to the top of a mountain opposite Hebron. This guy is insane in his strength. What can anyone do to subdue this mighty man? Well, Samson does have a weakness, and the Philistines are about to exploit it. Because look at verses 4 to 6. It says, After this, it came about that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. The lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Entice him, and see where his great strength lies, and how we may overpower him, that we may bind him to afflict him. Then we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength is, and how you may be bound to afflict you. Here's the third woman that Samson has become involved with. And we're told that she also is from the valley of Sorek, just like the first woman. This is the only woman in the Samson account whose name is given. She's called Delilah, a name that means something like thin thread, or delicate, or even flirtatious. Is Delilah a Philistine? Text does not identify her this way specifically. She might not be. It would be consistent with Samson's previous love interest. He, he loved two different women of the Philistines. It would make sense if Delilah was also a Philistine. Though it doesn't say that specifically. However, she is quite willing to work with the Philistines. And we see this in verses 5 to 6. The Philistine lords, probably the five lords of the different main cities of the Philistines, they approached Delilah, each offering her 1,100 pieces of silver, which is an extraordinary amount of money. They offer her this money if she can discover the source of Samson's strength, find out how he can be subdued. These lords are obviously desperate to get their vengeance on Samson, and Delilah is willing to go along with their plan. In verse 6, we begin to see Delilah pry Samson for his secret. And haven't we seen this already? This is exactly like what happened to Samson with his wife in Judges 14. Remember, he had a secret. The wife was uh, plying him for it. But this time, it's not Samson's wife's life who is in danger. It is his own. Will Samson end up giving away the secret like he did before? I'll summarize verses 7 to 17 in Judges 16. As Delilah goes after Samson, Samson tells Delilah three different lies as to how he might be subdued. And once Delilah hears it, she tries out all three methods on Samson. Uh, She has Philistines close by, waiting in secret to see Samson, and then she cries out, The Philistines are upon you, Samson! you got to get up and protect yourself! Well, Samson is able each one of these times to free himself from his bindings, and the Philistines don't attack, they don't reveal themselves. Now you think, you'd think that as Samson realized that 
Delilah is using whatever secret he, he supposedly gives up to bind him that maybe he'd stop he'd stop telling her anything more. Maybe he'd stop visiting Delilah. She kind of seems to be maybe threatening his life. But he continues to visit her. And she continues to press Samson. And she even tells him, you don't really love me because you haven't told me the secret. Again, it's exactly like what his wife said in chapter 14. Verse 16 of our chapter, Judges 16, 16, says that Delilah pressed Samson daily with her words until Samson was annoyed to death. This was really getting to him. So in verse 17, finally, Samson tells his secret. He reveals to Delilah that he has been a Nazarite to God from the mother from his mother's womb and that if shaved, his great strength will leave him. Let's now look at verses 18 to 22. Judges 16, verse 18. When Delilah saw that he had told her all that was in his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up once more, for he has told me all that is in his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. Then the, um, she made him sleep on her knees and called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his hair. Then she began to afflict him, that is, she bound him, and his strength left him. She said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that Yahweh had departed from him. Then the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes. And they brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze chains. And he was a grinder in the prison. However, the hair of his head began to grow again after it was shaved off. Well, talk about a precipitous fall. When Delilah insincerely warns Samson of the Philistines coming to get him, after his hair has been cut off and she has bound him, Samson thinks he can easily escape the bindings as before. But he didn't, he didn't know what was revealed at the end of verse 20. Yahweh had departed from him. With Samson firmly in their control, then the Philistines, they don't destroy Samson, but they afflict and humiliate him. They gouge out his eyes. They rip his eyes out of his sockets. And they take him to Gaza and force him to grind grain in a prison. This once unstoppable warrior of Yahweh has now been reduced to a blind prisoner doing the work of an animal. You can't get much lower than Samson is right now. Notice verse 22. It says Samson's hair began to grow back. Well, you can guess how the Philistines reacted to the news of Samson's capture. We reach now the climax of the story, the climax of the account of Samson, at the end of chapter 16, Judges 16, verses 23 to 31. So now let's read this last section. It says, Now the lords of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice, for they said, Our god has given Samson, our enemy, into our hands. When the People saw him, they praised their God, for they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hands, even the destroyer of our country, who has slain many of us. So happened, when they were in high spirits, that they said, Call for Samson, that he may amuse us. So they called for Samson from the prison, and he entertained them. And they made him stand between the pillars, 
Then Samson said to the boy who was holding his hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women, and all the lords of the Philistines were there. And about three thousand men and women were on the roof, looking on while Samson was amusing them. Then Samson called to Yahweh and said, O Lord Yahweh, please remember me, and please strengthen me just this time, O God, that I may at once be avenged of the Philistines from my two eyes. Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and braced himself against them, the one with his right hand and the other with his left. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he bent with all his might so that the house fell on the lords and all the people who were in it, so the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those he killed, those whom he killed in his life. And his brothers and all his father's household came down, took him, brought him up, and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of Manoah his father. Thus he had judged Israel twenty years. Really an amazing end in this account. The Philistines celebrate Samson's capture by praising and sacrificing to their god, Dagon. More than 3,000 Philistines, including the Philistine lords, probably the five kings of these different cities, they come together in a certain large building, maybe a temple, and they watch, or they probably feast and watch blinded Samson be forced to amuse them. As I said, this is, you can't get much more humiliated than Samson is right now, and at the hands of his enemies, even the enemies of God. But notice verse 28. As Samson stands next to the, apparently the two central pillars of this building, Samson calls out to God. And he addresses God as Yahweh. He says, Oh Lord Yahweh, please remember me. Now, when somebody asks God to remember him in the Old Testament, he's not saying, hey, you forgot me. Uh, Bring me back to mind, please. God doesn't forget. This is actually a statement asking for mercy. It's a plea for God's mercy and favor. Lord, remember me. Please show special and undeserved grace to me. And he requests of God, please strengthen me this one last time that I may be avenged on the Philistines from my two eyes. It says also in verse 30, Let me die with the Philistines. Samson pushes with all his might on the pillars. They break and the whole structure collapses. It's possible that this structure had a, a courtyard as well as, a, as a, an inside area, but everything collapses and those on the roof and those inside are all destroyed. And verse 30 says, Samson killed more at his death than he did in his whole life. What a life. What a death. But what do we make of it? What are we to make of it? Let's finally look at interpretation. Let's ask some questions of interpretation based on the various sections that we've read and observed. All this came about because Samson sinned. Oh, sorry, that, that's a little bit cut off there. Samson sinned in wanting to marry a Philistine woman. All this came about because he wanted that. But Judges 14.4 says that this actually came about from Yahweh. Yahweh ordained this. So how can a good God want or ordain a sinful act to be done, even if it results in the accomplishment of a good purpose? 
This is clearly against God's will for Samson to desire this marriage, and yet God said, in a certain sense, he wanted it. How can that be? Well, this is basically another version of the problem of evil question. How can a good God ordain evil in the world? And we won't take time now to fully discuss that question and its answer. But in short, the reply, the necessary reply from Scripture is this. God, because he is God, he is able to ordain evil for his own good purposes without approving evil, being blamable for evil, or coercing the will of man to do evil. God is able to do that. We might not be able to fully comprehend that. There's certainly some mystery in this truth, but it's what the Bible teaches. Throughout this account, we see Samson making sinful and foolish choices, and he's responsible for those choices. Nobody forced him to do that. Yet, what Samson chose to do came about from Yahweh, and it was accomplishing God's good purposes. Everything's under God's control. He's sovereign, and we see that in this account. Another question. Many of Samson's actions appear to be motivated by vengeance. But isn't seeking vengeance sinful? Well, it's true. God does say in Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, that vengeance is mine, I will repay. Certainly, God's people are instructed in the scriptures not to repay evil with evil. Still, seeking vengeance can be appropriate in certain unique contexts. For example, those who God places in authority over nations, leaders, rulers, judges, they are, in a sense, to seek vengeance, to seek justice against those who commit crimes. This is not something that people are normally allowed to do, but those who are placed in authority, they, in a sense, are commanded to seek vengeance. Also, war. War is a bit of an exception when it comes to vengeance. When a nation unjustly attacks another nation, it is fitting for the attacked nation to fight back and punish the aggressor. Now, it's not impossible that Samson sought an ungodly type of vengeance at times in these accounts, or in this account. But considering the wartime situation in which Samson finds himself, basically the war between Philistia and Israel, I think we should not be too hard on him when it comes to seeking vengeance. Remember that even Moses is commended in the books of Acts for seeking vengeance on behalf of the oppressed. So I think there is a sense in which Samson, at least in part, is seeking a godly vengeance against the Philistines. Here's another question. Wasn't God, and not Samson's hair, the source of Samson's strength? Why then does Samson lose his strength when his hair is cut off? Is the strength really in the hair? Well, certainly it is God and not the hair that is the source of Samson's strength. And Samson himself acknowledges this. Nevertheless, Samson's hair was important because his hair was a symbol of that set-apart, that devoted relationship that Samson had with Yahweh. It was the, the most obvious symbol of his Nazarite, Nazarite vow, his permanent Nazarite vow. Therefore, in Samson's allowing his hair to be cut off, Samson was really showing contempt for his relationship with God. Uh, as the MacArthur Study Bible puts it, it's like Samson... In allowing that act was saying that Delilah was more important to him than God. And thus, with the action that his hair being cut off symbolized or epitomized, God left Samson 
and no longer strengthened him. It was a sign that their relationship uh, was no longer being held special by Samson. But the regrowth of Samson's hair in verse 16 of Judges 16 is significant because though assuredly Samson, even in the last scene that we see him, he assuredly did not have the full head of hair like he did before, even a little bit of regrowth was emblematic of a restored relationship of devotion to God. Samson's prayer at the very end is not very extensive in its wording, but his cry for remembrance before God, it is consistent with a humble heart of repentance. He's seeking a restored relationship with God simply on the basis of God's mercy. Now think of the parallel with the thief on the cross in the New Testament. He says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Which is like just asking for mercy. I don't deserve it, but, but please show me mercy. Have pity on me when you, when you do come into your kingdom. And Samson is saying something similar here. It's really a, a sign of repentance. And so with this prayer, God indeed remembers Samson. And as before, he strengthens Samson for one more mighty act. So yes, the strength came from God, but that hair symbolized Samson's special relationship with God, even devotion to God. Now speaking of Samson's last act, did Samson commit suicide? I would say no. Samson's cry when he says, let me die with the Philistines, I don't take that to be a cry of despair, saying, I just want to die. I think that's an acknowledgement that as he pursues this last valorous act against the Philistines, that he's not going to survive. I think he accepted that. He said, if I have to die, that's fine, but let me take down these Philistines too. So I don't believe he was committing suicide there. Just to give it like a parallel to show the difference, not too much later in, in, in the Bible, as we move up forward, we're going to see someone else commit suicide. King Saul, when he's defeated in battle and he's wounded, because he doesn't want to be captured by the Philistines, he will fall on his own sword. Now that looks like suicide. But here we have Samson trying to destroy his enemies, and he just recognizes that he's going to die in the process. Was Samson really a man of faith? One obvious truth in the passages we've looked at, I'm sure you're realizing this yourself, is that Samson was a sinner. His most obvious sin is his lust for women. He's, because he just wants beauty around him or, or sexual fulfillment, he engages in three sinful relationships with women and to his own hurt. He sinned in other ways too, uh, probably having vainglory or selfish ambition at times. Certainly he seems to violate his Nazarite vow by touching what is unclean, perhaps the honey, perhaps the jawbone. So was he really a man of faith? Well, listen to Hebrews. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament, chapter 11, verses 32 to 34. It says, And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah of David, and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith, conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. The book of Hebrews, the Spirit of God speaking through 
that apostolic representative, it commends Samson, yes, Samson, as a man of faith. Now, how did Samson demonstrate his faith? Well, I would say mostly in battle. Now, we probably don't consider fighting to be a usual or a great sign of faith, but I think part of the reason is that we don't live in a society like the ancient Hebrews did. We don't live in a society where nearly every man has to participate in war, and not just war, hand-to-hand combat. Think that's a little bit daunting, frightening? Certainly, we admire David when he goes against Goliath for David's faith. It was demonstrated in battle. I think the same thing is really happening with Samson. He was going against the enemies of God, going into this scary experience of battle by faith and on behalf of Israel, trusting God to empower him and to grant the victory and deliverance. Samson was relying on God in his battles, and we even hear him tell God that it's God who is granting the victory. He gives the credit to God. What is that? That's faith in action, even in war and battle. It's totally consistent with even what the end of that section I read from Hebrews 11 says. It says, he, some of those in the scriptures, by faith were made mighty in war. And that's exactly what Samson is. He's a man by faith who is made mighty in war. Now, of course, he's imperfect in many other ways, but he is a man of faith. And it shows up in his mighty, mighty acts of war. Finally, what does this account teach us about God? I think we can point to a number of different different ways. First of all, we see that God is active. God is working even when he doesn't seem to be working. You say, oh, where's that from? Well, go back to Judges chapter 13. It's interesting there. It says Israel turned away from God, but it doesn't mention anything about Israel's repentance. In fact, we're not going to see Israel repent of their idolatry before God until actually the next book, or several books uh, later, 1 Samuel 7, when we get to the judge Samuel, finally Israel repents, and finally Israel is fully delivered from the Philistines. But that hasn't happened yet with Samson, yet what is God doing? He approaches this couple, this barren couple, and he says, I'm going to start raising up a deliverer through you. I'm going to bring this boy, Samson, into the world, and he's going to go against the Philistines. He's going to begin the deliverance. Now again, this is the same truth we saw with Gideon. This visit from the angel of Yahweh, it shows Yahweh is paying attention, Yahweh sees the oppression of his people, and he's already working to deliver them from it. This is because God is always at work, even when we don't see it. Something that this passage shows us. We also see the goodness of God. We see that God is good, he shows patience, he shows mercy, and he shows compassion to the undeserving. I mean, look at Samson's experience. He was blessed by God in so many ways, even though he was not really totally faithful to God. He's committing this immorality. He's not taking his Nazarite vow entirely seriously. And yet God blesses and uses Samson. That is the mercy of God. That is the grace of God. And even after Samson experiences the consequences of his sin, when Samson cries out to God again, God in mercy does remember Samson. It's because God is a merciful God. He was back then. He is still today. We see also that God is good to command us to stay away from sin. We see the ruinous nature of sin, especially immorality in this passage. God is good to say, don't go there. I don't want that to happen to you. 
Don't do, don't be foolish in pursuing sin. We see that in this passage. We see God's sovereignty. God is able, and He clearly does here. Use He's able to use the evil acts of men, even the disobedience of His own people, to accomplish His grand and good purposes. And we don't take that as a as someone hypothetically does. In the New Testament says, "Oh well, let's just do evil so that God may bring good out of it." No. Now we are to we are commanded to do good and to obey God. Nevertheless, we see the amazingness of God's rule, God's sovereignty, when He uses even evil to accomplish His good purposes. You cannot thwart the purposes of God. He's in firm control, and that just goes along with the next thing we see in this passage, and that is God is powerful. Where does Samson's strength come from? It comes from God, and it's an insane strength. No one in the Scriptures does the kind of strength acts that Samson does. Carrying gates around, killing a thousand people by himself, tearing a lion apart with his bare hands. This is amazing power, but it's just God's power. And this is so easy for God. He is able to empower Samson this way because God himself is powerful. There is no God with might like the true God. He empowered Samson. He can empower other believers in him too, can't he? He's not going to do it in a miraculous way, there's no reason to expect he's going to do that in a miraculous way today like he did with Samson. That doesn't seem to be what God is doing now. But he he is able to empower in a variety of ways just as he empowered Samson, even us, for the work set before us. So we see God is good, we see he's active, we see he's sovereign, we see he's powerful, we see he's merciful, we see he's also faithful. He remains faithful to Samson. He's able to provide perfectly for those who call upon him, even us. And we also see that God is holy. God is holy and just. When Samson turned against God in a very obvious way, God left Samson. Not that Samson lost salvation, but God no longer was fellowshipping with or empowering Samson. And he will chasten us too when we turn away from him so that we come back to him. And think of what God does with the Philistines here. Israel has not repented yet. God says, I'm not going to let the Philistines get away with what they're doing. I'm going to bring judgment on them, even through this one man, Samson. It's because God is a God who cannot stand sin. He's holy. He's just. He doesn't, he cannot allow evil to get away with itself. He must judge evil. He must judge sinners. And he will. He will recompense sinners Partly in this life, but certainly in the life to come. And this is why the Bible calls us again and again to be reconciled to God so that we might experience mercy like Samson does and not a judgment like the Philistines do. This account has much to show us about God. And I think we could even say much more about this passage. You know, I've kind of moved quickly through it. And maybe you you felt like, oh, I want to take more time with this. Well, I hope that you do, and I hope that you will. I hope that you'll come back to these passages that we've moved through, Judges 13 to 16, read them again, study them more, talk about them together, because there's a lot to see here. Now this, in summary, this account of Samson is a clear depiction of the sovereignty of God, the folly of sin, and the empowerment and blessing that comes from God to those who are following God and are doing God's work. We're not going to be grabbing a jawbone and fighting a thousand enemies, but we do have work of sanctification and evangelism and service set before us. And where's the power for that going to come from? 
It's going to come from God. We are to obey by faith in that way. Well, what are some other specific applications that we can draw from this passage? I'm going to give you four. Again, these aren't the only applications, but they're four that come to my mind as I read and as I go through this text with you. And I'll start with the low-hanging fruit. What's a specific way we can apply this passage? Number one, flee sinful romantic and sexual entanglement. Isn't this the thing that brings down even mighty Samson? He loved women, and he loved women who didn't love God. This is what brought him down. Now, brothers and sisters, I know it's going to be a continual temptation, even a continual problem, that some, some even in the church, are going to say, yes, I know he's not a believer, or I know she's not a believer, but I love him, and I think this is the Lord's will. Sorry, that's just not true from the scriptures. And that's a way that you are going to bring trouble, suffering, even ruin into your life. Don't date unbelievers. Don't marry unbelievers. You sin against God when you do so, and you bring trouble on yourself. And Samson is a perfect picture of that. Moreover, for any anyone who might be listening who's dabbling in sexual immorality or... Uh, maintaining an immoral relationship or lifestyle, again, look at Samson. He is like the poster child of Proverbs 5 and Proverbs 7, those passages that warn about how sexual immorality ruins. That's exactly what happened with Samson. Now, I'm sure he didn't intend to be ruined, but he wasn't guarding himself. (laughs) I mean, look, especially even with what happens with Delilah. He sees Delilah... Uh, doing kind of suspicious things, working for his harm, and yet he keeps visiting her. We need to learn from Samson's negative experience. We are to not just uh, not participate, but flee potential romantic entanglements or sexual sin when an avenue for that appears. Don't just go near it or see how close you can get to it. Run away from it. If you're wise, if you want to experience the blessing of God, you'll do that. Now, if you have sinned in these ways, as you repent, the Lord is merciful. There is some restoration possible there. But the Bible warns us, even through Samson, don't even go near that path. That's one application. Another is, make sure that you're angry about the right things in the right way. Now, it's true. Often as Christians, we get angry over the wrong things and in the wrong way. We're we're usually prone to sinful anger, and that's why the Bible talks about anger being a sin. But remember, not all anger is a sin. There is such a thing as righteous indignation, and we ought to have it where appropriate. We shouldn't be okay with sin and idolatry and blasphemy in the world. I mean, consider Paul's own example in Acts chapter 17. He's walking through the streets of Athens, and he's seeing all these idols around him, and what's his response? doesn't say, oh, well, you know, that's interesting, or, eh, well, you know, pagans, what are they going to do? He, he says, it says his spirit was provoked within him because of the idols and the idolatry he saw around him. In a certain sense, we should be provoked by the evil that we see around us. We should be provoked when we see oppression of people in sin. Now, what should that motivate us to do? Well, righteous anger always leads to righteous action. It should not provoke us to be like, I'm going to go kill some people. You know, I'm going to go commit murder. I'm going to go blow up an abortion facility. No. No, that is not what righteous anger does. Righteous anger leads to righteous action, especially the proclamation of the gospel. Isn't that what it did with Paul? 
confrontation of sin, proclamation of the saving gospel, that's what your righteous anger should lead to. We are to have that, just as I think Samson did in part. That's another application. Speaking a little bit more generally here, a third application is obey the Lord as you rely on his empowerment. The temptation we often experience as Christians is to be like, oh, but I just won't have the strength to do it. God, you call me to do this thing, but I just don't think I'll be able. Well, if God called you to it, where do you think the empowerment's going to come from? Not from you, from him. And remember what we said last time with Gideon. God takes the weak and he makes them strong and he glorifies himself by using them to accomplish his purposes. That's what he does even with you. Go back to 1 Corinthians 1. God uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. That's what he's going to do in your life. So don't be surprised when you feel like it's beyond you. Yes, it is beyond you. But that's how God's going to glorify himself. Even Samson realized this. The strength didn't come from himself. It came from God. And so you too, as you pursue the Lord in obedience, you will be empowered by him. Maybe not always in the way you expect, or uh, in the proportion that you expect, but it will be enough. He will be sufficient for you, just as he was for his people in the scriptures. And then finally, wherever you do experience the grace and victory of God, give God the glory for it. Give him thanks. Don't take credit for yourself. Let all the honor and glory go to God. You overcome a sin, you say no to a certain temptation, don't pat yourself on the back. Say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for your graciousness in sanctifying me and giving me the victory here. Or you you shared the gospel with somebody, or you uh, were moved to confront sin in a loving and yet um, firm way. Praise God for that. He's the one doing that work in your life. Any victory that you experience or that we experience as a church, all the glory is to go to God. We are to give Him thanks. We are to praise Him for it, even publicly. That's part of what it means to be a witness of God. We give praise to God for the good grace and victory that He shows us in Christ. That's something that should be part of your life. It was part of Samson's life. and want it to be part of ours too. I think you could probably pull more applications from this passage, but those are just four that I wanted to mention to you. Well, that's all for this week. If you have questions or comments about what you've heard from me today or about the passages that we've looked at, please post them in the chat. Or you can send them in an email to me afterwards at davkaposha at gmail.com. I'd love to interact with you a little bit about that as I can. Next week, we'll move on from the book of Judges to the book of Ruth. Ruth also takes place during the time of the Judges, a little bit different of a story, of an account. Uh, We see God's compassion especially put on display in the book of Ruth. I think you'll be really blessed as we look at that together, so I hope you'll be back. Let me close our time with prayer. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we know we are to learn and to be transformed from this account. You worked in a mighty way in Samson's life and on behalf of Israel, and yet Samson, he wasn't perfect. He experienced the consequences of sin. And Lord, we are to learn from that, but Lord, let us also learn that how, how you glorify yourself in empowering and using people who are weak on their own, who have no real strength in themselves. Lord, you will do that in us, who are your people. And I pray for any of those who don't know you, who might be listening this morning, that they might be saved. Lord, because they will experience your judgment if they do not turn, if they do not turn from their sin and give up their own way and follow you, if they uh, do not embrace Jesus Christ as the only Savior. 
So I pray, Lord, that they would run to your mercy and not experience your judgment. Lord, I pray that you bless Calvary and anyone listening, Lord, as they continue in worship today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, thank you once again for being part of our study this morning. And feel free to post something in the chat. Love to interact with you about that. But otherwise, I'll see you next week. All right, let's see. Dwayne and Judy, you ask, who is the he in 14.4? Let me take a look at that. For he was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. I believe that he is Yahweh. I don't believe it was Samson in that passage. Of course, we always want to make sure that uh, we're attaching the most grammatically logical and correct antecedent to a pronoun when it when it appears in the text. But because verse 4, 14.4 says, he did not know it was of Yahweh, for he was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. The context there suggests that that detail about Yahweh seeking, or that it was of Yahweh, it suggests that the next thing that comes afterwards is going to have something to do with that. It's Yahweh seeking an occasion against the Philistines. God was wanting to bring judgment against the, against the Philistines, and he was using this conflict which was going to erupt between Samson and the Philistines now, over this marriage to bring it about. Good question, though. Uh, Vera, you ask, uh, Ken and Vera, when did you say the next time was that Israel repented? That's First Samuel chapter 7. I wanted to say more about this, but we just didn't have time today. Very interesting, the connection between Samson and Eli and Samuel. Uh, one thing I've been wanting to say about the judges, though I just really haven't had a good place in the lesson to do so, is that the judges, they sometimes overlap with each other a little bit. The oppression that Israel experiences is usually uh, regional, not national. It's not the whole country being controlled by an oppressor. And so it's possible that you have different people oppressing uh, Israel at the same time, and also possible that you have different judges being alive at the same time. And so it looks like Samson, he rises up, even when Israel is not repentant yet, in the southwestern part of Israel, and he fights against the Philistines. And at the same time, we have Eli and Samuel being raised up, and they're also going to be part of the deliverance against the Philistines. So in 1 Samuel 7, in verse... um, uh, 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 Let me find the specific one. Verse 3, we hear Samuel exhorting the people to turn back to Yahweh. And he says, if you do this, what's going to happen? At the end of verse 3... Serve Yahweh alone, and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. And then it says in verse 4, So the sons of Israel removed the Baals and the Ashtarosh and served Yahweh alone. They hadn't repented yet, even under Samson, and yet Yahweh was being gracious to Israel. He was raising up deliverance in a certain respect on that side, and he was preparing greater deliverance to come when Israel actually repented under Samuel. Uh, Well, many of you are saying thanks. It's my pleasure. Thank you for being here. You're most welcome, of course. Yeah, Liz, you mentioned uh, Samson asking his parents to get that wife for him, and they, they acquiesce. Is it because they were so glad to have their child, they just wanted to please him? We don't know exactly. It seems to be that they... Samson was pretty insistent about it, and maybe they felt like there was nothing they could do. But yeah, it does, on their end, right, yeah, he is, you say he doesn't ask, he tells them. Uh, in some ways, those things are, are not, not different from one another. 
it it is uh it is certainly wrong for them to acquiesce to that just as it's wrong for Samson to pursue that it's wrong for them to acquiesce to that and yet in that mysterious way in God's sovereign way he he used that sin he ordained that sin to bring about this purpose of causing a war causing a conflict between Philistia and Israel uh Roy mentioned you uh, you mentioned a question. I've read of the connection between the Philistines and today's Palestinians. Is there some truth to this? That's a good question. I don't entirely know the answer. I do remember uh, hearing something in one of my classes. Well, let me say one thing real quick. The name Palestine does come from the name Philistia. Uh, there's an etymological relationship, and it appears that uh, the Romans, as part of their response to the Jewish revolts in the first century AD and a little bit afterwards, they go back to using this term Palestine related to the Philistines uh, rather than Judea or Judea as part of their punishment of the Jews and the revolt. That's not necessarily the first place where the term Palestine originated from, but certainly it was consistent with they're wanting to respond against the Jews in a, in a negative way. So there is a connection between the term Philistine and the term Palestine, though I, I seem to remember in, in one of the classes that I listened to that it is somewhat questionable as to whether there is a genetic link between the two. Uh, the, today's Palestinians may have a slightly different genetic origin than their name suggests. Uh, there's even a, there's a whole discussion we can get into about the genetic the genetic nature of the people living in the land of Canaan today. Even the the Jewish ethnic heritage has some kind of interesting uh, questions to it as to uh, what what is the the ethnic heritage heritage of the Jews living in in, in Palestine, Israel today. Might they actually have some Philistine ancestry in them? It's a lot of lot of questions when it comes to that. So, I know I'm speaking a little bit um, off the cuff and without entire knowledge. It's something I would like to look into a little bit more. But I wouldn't say that it's it's a um, it's a sure thing that today's Palestinians are indeed descended from the Philistines. All right, Vern, you mentioned some historians say Palestine was applied by Romans to remove the Jewish association after the Hebrew revolt. Yeah, I've certainly read that, Vern. Uh, I think the Romans certainly are trying to, in a sense, erase Judaism. Uh, one of the things that we see after the uh, after the rebellions, I believe after the 70 AD rebellion, is that they actually banish Jews from Jerusalem and they rename it. It's no longer called Jerusalem under the Roman Empire, but Aelia Capitolina, which is a reference to Jupiter. And so when Israel continues to rebel in 133 with the Bar Kokhba revolt, it seems this is another kind of punishment from the Romans saying we want to erase the Jewish connection to this area and we're going to call it by a new name. Now, I don't think from what I read, that that is the origin of the term Palestine, but certainly it is part of the Romans trying to remove the association of Judaism from the land. They say, hey, there's this other term for the for the area, Palestine, we're going to use that instead of Judea. These are good questions, though. 
Any other questions or comments before I sign off? Well, if you think of anything else that you'd like to share with me, you can send it to my email address. But thank you again for joining. Oh, Roy, you have a comment. Yeah, Roy mentions, I have read of a Semitic genetic connection to many people in the Middle East, which makes sense as sons of Noah and later Abraham. And certainly that's true. Uh, there, uh, Many of the descendants of the Middle East area do, do have a, a Semitic um, origin that goes way back to Shem, one of the sons of uh, sons of Noah. Certainly, there uh, the situation ethnically is very interesting and different in, in the Middle East than it was in the times of Israel. So there are a lot of interesting questions to pursue there. But that that's something I need my, I myself need to look into a little bit more. But anyways, thank you again for joining. And as I said, if you have other questions, you can email me. But otherwise, have a wonderful Lord's Day, and I'll see you again soon.